Welcome to the podcast of the National Institute for Health Research, the NIHR. This is an episode in the series Conversations about Diabetes Research. This time, discover the links between obesity and diabetes and how research is helping to inform treatments and lifestyle choices. Also, find out what the future of diabetes research looks like and how to get involved. I'm Ruben Lewis, a Research Delivery Manager at the NIHR Clinical Research Network, Northwest London. It's a pleasure to have you with us. And my name is Dr. Neil Hill. I'm a consultant in diabetes and endocrinology at Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust, as well as the speciality lead for diabetes for the NIHR Clinical Research Network, Northwest London. We're joined by Dr. Syra Hamid, a consultant in diabetes and endocrinology at Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust and honorary clinical senior lecturer at Imperial College London. Hi, Syra. Hi, Neil. Thanks for inviting me. Really, really um, pleased to be with you. Thank you. I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts as you're brilliant at explaining science and medicine. Uh, and I'm sure this will be an area that lots of people are really interested in. So let's get going with uh, uh, some questions and see where we go. Sorry, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and, you, and your research? Yeah, glad to. Thank you for asking. So thank you for that really kind introduction. Um, I am based at the Imperial Weight Centre um, at St Mary's Hospital, where I'm a consultant endocrinologist and I um, look after people whose uh, BMI is in the obesity category. And some of these people are contemplating bariatric surgery, ultimately in their um, weight care journey. At least 25% of the people who we see at the Imperial Weight Centre have type 2 diabetes. And therefore, this uh, phrase, uh, diabetes is highly relevant to the work that I do. My research predominantly looks at, as you very eloquently uh, described, how non-surgical interventions, behavioural changes, dietary modifications and so on, can not only result in substantial weight loss, but also diabetes remission as well, which, as you can imagine, means a great deal to the patients being treated. Thank you. That's really interesting. And um, can you tell us what what do you mean by to, to our listeners? What what do we mean by obesity exactly? It's a really good question. So obesity has a medical definition based on the body mass index or, or BMI, which many listeners might have heard of, and that's the ratio between weight and height. And obesity is defined if your BMI is above thirty. However. It's a slightly it's slightly more nuanced than that in the sense that people can have illnesses related to their weight at a lower BMI than 30. Conversely, some people have a BMI of 30 or above and are really very metabolically healthy. So yes, BMI is important to ensure that you're in some sort of ballpark when you're talking about weight. But you do also have to consider how that weight impacts on certain individuals. For example, we know that people from the Indian subcontinent will develop metabolic illnesses like diabetes at a lower BMI than other populations such as Caucasians. And so you also you sort of have to take into account the person sitting in front of you 
as well as that BMI calculation. That's that's so interesting, Sarah, because I think uh, if I can be honest, I'm probably one of those that are in that category. But when I go to a doctor or when I see a clinician, often you know BMI is such a important factor when I go to my GP BMI is what is measured as opposed to anything else do you think that that message is you know in terms of its variance in in sort of different populations do you think that message is going out to the public at all? I think that message isn't really going out to the public is is Mm. the answer I think there's a good public awareness that sometimes people can have a, a high BMI and be really healthy. So people always talk about rugby players, for example. They say, look at that elite athlete who has a BMI, which should put him in the obese category, but actually he spends his whole day exercising he's incredibly fit and healthy. So people have an awareness that things contribute to, to the BMI, like musculature, um, which are outside of, of, of the amount of, of, of excess Uh, fat someone is carrying I think though that the point you make Ruben is a very good one I don't think people necessarily have that um, awareness of of, of, yes look at BMI but actually you know who who am I as a person you know what's my um, ethnic heritage and and, and so on I'm not sure that that's quite um, in the mainstream that's so interesting and then what you mentioned so when I came up with the title of the podcast I basically put diabetes and obesity together to, to term it diabetes, diabetes. Mm. a bit like, you know, when you're, when your children or when my children anyway are hungry and angry, you, you, you say that they're hangry, right? But is, is diabetes actually a, a clinical term? Like, is it used in, 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 in healthcare settings? It's a really good question, Ruben. So it's not, I, I don't think it's a sort of medically defined term as it were, um, although it is, it's fairly commonly used. And I think the reason you've chosen such a nice title for the podcast is because you're, you're sort of bringing that, that sort of relationship together that when people are of a higher body weight, your chance of type 2 diabetes is, goes up. Um, and that is certainly an important message. I think the public are understanding that more and more. Um, what, what is important to say, though, is that I mentioned at the beginning that I, I look after people in the Imperial Weight Centre who can have very high BMI, um, who do not have type 2 diabetes, and will probably never get type 2 diabetes. Um, so they, it's not, they're, they're not synonymous with each other, meaning, you know, above a certain BMI, I'm going to develop type 2 diabetes by any means. But certainly one of the biggest risk factors for type 2 diabetes is excess body weight. So, so yes, there is certainly a relationship there. And I think the reason why I can sometimes see somebody with a BMI of 50 or 60 in the Imperial Weight Centre who has perfect glycemic control is a lot to do with genetics as well. So we know from twin studies that type 2 diabetes is highly heritable. And then there's something about the environment and your excess body weight that will pull the trigger on that genetic risk. But for some people, perhaps because they don't have that risk, it doesn't matter how high the weight becomes, they will not develop problems with glycemia and go on to develop type 2 diabetes. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's really um, fascinating because our, the title of the podcast is, you know, diabetes, diabetes, obesity you know, best friend, best of friends. Mm. What, you're, what you're saying is that's, that's just a bit of a fallacy. 
and actually um, they don't necessarily go hand in hand. Is that is that is that basically it? Yeah, I think you're right. So I think is that I think there is you can certainly uh, be, be a heavier person and never develop type two diabetes. But I think your message, Ruben, is absolutely right that the risk for type two diabetes will increase as your body weight increases for, for, for a lot of people. And as clinicians, it's unusual for us to see people with type two diabetes who are not either in the overweight or obese category of BMI. It's very, very unusual. And so if somebody comes to see us and it sort of feels like maybe they do have type 2 diabetes, but their body mass index is, is, is normal or they're very slim, then that's the time to think, is there something else going on? Is this another form of diabetes? So, so um, there, there are sort of all those things to run, run through in your, in, your, in your mind, but I think it's really important that the message is there that, that, that high body weight is, is, is a predominant risk factor for the development of type 2 diabetes. And what's lovely to circle back to what I was saying about my research is if you lose a certain amount of weight, you cross that tipping point going the other way, you can lose the diabetes, which is a very hopeful message. That, that links in really nicely, actually, with my, my next question, Syrah, which is, is about research and perhaps looking at what research has been done previously that sort of helps us understand um, obesity and, and diabetes. That's a really good question, Neil. So there's some really beautiful work that, that was published many, many decades ago that, um, that really is still at the forefront of the literature. So research I'm talking about firstly is about the classic starvation experiments. And these involved either prisoners, because uh, you know they were a, a captive audience, uh, pun intended, um, or prisoners of war. So people who, uh, particularly in the Korean War, the American soldiers who were who were put on starvation rations when they were in prisoner of war camps. And what we see is that when you are placed on a very, very low calorie diet, your body reacts by mounting a starvation response so that your hunger hormones run high, the hormones that make you feel full fall, your um, neurotransmitters in your brain change the way they're working. So you become very, very fixated on food and food seeking. Your basal metabolic rate falls by about 25%. So you're cold and tired and lethargic and you definitely don't want to go for a run. And so those studies, which clearly we couldn't replicate now today for all sorts of ethical and logistical reasons, really do inform us that um, asking people to eat less biologically really cannot work. And then when people say, oh, you know, I'm so sorry, doctor, I tried for three months. I tried on my thousand calories, but I got so hungry and I got so tired and I'm so sorry and I've let you down. We're probably not giving the soundest biological advice there because, you know, even if you have the steeliest willpower, it is incredibly hard to fight your body's biochemistry long term. So that's, I think, quite an important message to get out there. That's not to say that you should treat every day as an all-you-can-eat buffet by any means, because clearly you're not going to lose any weight if you do that. But I think very, very restrictive, very low-calorie diets are 
extremely hard to sustain in the long term. And that's nothing to do with being morally weak or having some sort of discipline issue. And it's all to do with, you know, if you evolve the starvation response over tens of thousands of years of human evolution, it's pretty difficult to fight that just by saying today's going to be a good day. You know, so so I think those older studies really should inform our clinical practice today. And when we think about those studies, we should perhaps be moving away from the advice to simply eat less, because the idea of calories is really burned onto the consciousness of the general public and healthcare professionals. Um, and it, it probably hasn't served us that well over the years in terms of getting good long term outcomes. So, so what's current research being done today and, and what's that looking into and your research in particular, Sarah? It's a really good question, Neil. So, um, so, so my research, um, at, at, given my sort of endocrine background, looks at the endocrine, which means the hormone control of body weight. So I described a scenario just now whereby you're not really working with your body's biology. My research looks at how can you tap into your hormone system to to work with your biology to lose weight because it's the hormones that have really pushed the weight gain in the first place. So then how do you turn that in the other direction to lose weight? And the key hormone that I'm interested in is insulin. And lots of our listeners will have heard of insulin because they think of it as being the diabetes hormone. They might know someone who injects it or they might inject it themselves. But in normal biology, we all produce insulin in response to eating something. And the amount of insulin we produce is proportional to how much our blood sugar rises after eating. And if there is an excess of blood sugar after eating, um, that does not need to be used immediately for your heart to beat or your muscles to take you from A to B. The excess needs to be stored somewhere. So under the influence of insulin, the excess sugar that people are eating will be stored in various fuel tanks in the body, including the body's fat stores. And so if we eat in a way that leads to lots of excess blood sugar a lot of the time, we run very high levels of this hormone insulin all of the time. And so we are fat storing most of the time. And that's what I look at, but it's not all a, a sort of doom and gloom story because simply by making some dietary changes, and I say simply, of course, it's it's hard work and it takes focus and it takes it takes you to sort of buy in and want to do that. But if you um, alter your diet in such a way that when you eat, you don't have huge rises in your blood sugar, you can see that your insulin levels will run much lower and therefore you won't be in fat storing mode a lot of the time. So that that's that's I, I look at the, the hormonal basis of both fat storage and fat loss. And that seems to work much better in the long term for people than simply trying to exert willpower to eat less. And where do you think that research is is going in the future, Syra? I th- it's a really good question, Neil, because I think people are becoming increasingly aware that they want perhaps something different, that they've tried many, many, many things over the years and they're not seeing results. I think people are are reading up on things like I've described, like your blood sugar, 
or insulin and so on. And people are becoming um, more more tuned in uh, to the fact that they want this sort of different um, approach. And I think from what I see, the, the groundswell is, is coming from the public here. And it's it's really taken off in the last three, four, five years. And so I think that research will will go and go, particularly because the, the, the public are saying, oh, you know, I'd, I'd like to know more about this or I'd like to lose weight and maintain that. And I don't like the idea that I'm going to have diabetes for the rest of my life. How can I reverse that? So I think those those directions are there, both in the weight loss space and the diabetes space and, it, and it's really good that the the public are empowered to do that isn't it and I and I suppose I had a few sort of questions in my mind in terms of that empowering the public if you were to see someone today uh, in at imperial you know sort of weight center and they're keen to lose weight there's so much information out there there's you know a vast yeah. quantity to it what how would you recommend, what would you recommend for people to access in terms of its reliability and trustworthiness? Yeah, Ruben, you're absolutely right, because anyone can write anything on social media, anyone can write anything on the internet. And even in the mainstream re- media, you can pick up a Saturday newspaper and your eyes can be out on stalks. You say, really? You know, and you know that lots and lots of people are, are reading about this. So it's you, you're right that that there is now so much information out there, and I think a lot of the public feel a bit overwhelmed with what often feels like very contradictory mm-hmm. advice. The Saturday newspaper says one thing, and the Sunday newspaper says the exact opposite. So where do you where do you start from? So I think um, definitely having a discussion with a trusted healthcare professional, which might be your your doctor, your diabetes nurse, your your GP, and so on. Um, is a very, very good starting point to help you at least filter through some of that white noise to get to the right level of information. Mm. I do think, think, Ruben, that having that sort of bespoke conversation is important because there is no one treatment that suits everybody. And so my my programme, for example, that I was describing to you, it works and it works really, really well, but it doesn't work in everybody and not everybody likes it and it doesn't suit everybody's biology or mindset and so on and therefore I think firstly having that conversation with somebody who knows you who knows you well who knows what motivates you and who also knows your health record is important Um, and that's really the best sort of starting point rather than you know going on to google or going on to social media i have lots of patients who come and they say i've seen this thing on instagram and what do you think and you know of course it's lovely that people are are very kind of switched on to things and they're as you say, Ruben, empowered and they want to make changes and they want to find that information out for themselves. But I do think a good starting point is starting with your with your um, sort of healthcare professional to get a little bit of a steer about what could be appropriate for you. And I, I, I confess, I, I'm probably one of those people, we live in a digital age where you do Google, you know, oh, you know, a bit of Christmas weight, where, how do I have a, a sort of a rapid weight loss? That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. What about those that... Um, you know, listen to your previous answer about um, the public shaping uh, the future research. So how do you think people can either get involved in uh, A, um, shaping what the future research looks like, or B, taking part in um, research that's ongoing now? 
So I, I, I think that there are various ways to get involved and we're always so, so grateful because research cannot move forward without that public altruism and interest. So just by sharing interest, it's just such a, a, an amazing gift to sort of give to the scientific community and the wider, um, you know, uh, public really. So, so firstly, if anyone is interested in getting into research, that's just incredibly generous. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the ways to get involved and, and, and maybe these can go up on a, on a website or, or some other way to, to, to let people know is there are currently um, a huge number of trials going on just simply at Imperial. Um, looking at obesity, looking at diabetes, and those will be available at various web links that I'm sure we can um, share. There is a clinical trials registry as well that people can look at and see what are the active trials. And again, I'm sure we can share the link. Um, and what can I get involved in? What's relevant to my situation? So there are um, uh, various information out there on the on the on the web, and we can share the links so that people can see what's active at the moment and what's relevant to me, and what would I like to to help with. So um, anyone who wants to do that, it's an amazing gift, really, that they are taking part. And I also hope when people take part that there is a benefit for them. I know people do it to be really altruistic and and, and really sort of their. Uh, you know, helping us and, and, and helping kind of science move forward. But actually, very often taking part in research, there can be a benefit for you. It might be that you find out more about your health condition because you've had lots and lots of tests as part of the research study, or you might be involved in a treatment that leads to benefits for, for, for you. So, for example, my programme, which started as a research study but is now run as a routine part of our NHS care, the people who took part in that trial achieved really good things with weight loss diabetes and so on so there was also that added benefit for them so so yes if anyone wants to take part um please do look into the 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 various links that we can share yeah so i wanted to reassure anyone that's listening that we will definitely put these links on at the bottom of the podcast uh, when you when uh, when you click on it so uh, all the information uh, should be below the link that you've just clicked um time has uh, flown by um, it, you know, we've gone over 20 minutes and I think we could probably talk for another 40, but for the sake of our listeners and for the sake of you, Sarah, like, um, thank <laughs> you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, it's been really interesting. I hope that anyone listening has just learned about the, the, the links uh, between obesity and, and diabetes, that it isn't necessarily the case um, that if you have one, you have the other and that there are other factors involved. There's lots of research going on and more importantly uh, you the public are shaping what that research looks like in the future so uh, it's a really exciting conversation we hope that it's provoked a little bit of thought for you all uh, listening um, but thank you to you Neil uh, thanks so much for you joining and thanks so much Syra. Reuben it's been a pleasure and thank you Neil as well I'm really honoured to be invited thank you for having me. This was an episode of the NIHR podcast, part of our Conversations About Diabetes Research series. I'm Ruben Lewis. And I'm Dr. Neil Hill. Thank you for listening. For more information about the NIHR, you can visit our website, www.nihr.ac.uk, 
or find us on Twitter at NIHR Research. Thank you.